we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. I'm jumping ahead just a little bit. Let's give our full, full attention to these first nine verses. Now that I have your attention, just right before I do that, just want to give one repeat announcement. The vision of CCSC is to see lives changed. So often that happens in our pastors and our leaders first. You are all so welcome to join us at 4 p.m., two Sundays right here in this auditorium for the ordination of Dan T. Kim. It is a party as well as it's very sobering. And I must say that to get ordained and to be called into pastoral ministry for the rest of our lives, Lord willing, takes supernatural grace. So it would mean a lot for a youth director and for our church if you can all show up on 4 p.m. October 15th. All right, let's give our attention to this. I'll read it for starting at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So how did Christianity spread like wildfire? It once did and it still does. Maybe not in Europe or the United States of America. Oh, but surely around the world, it is an unstoppable kingdom force. But how did it originally spread like a wildfire. If you compile the historians and commentators together, some features that emerge is that these Christians people had the most inclusive and sacred value for all of life. Christian people were known to be the most inclusive in their sacred value for all of life. Every human being is made in the image of God from the womb. Christian people were known when female or even slave children were thrown out, it was the Christians who would come along, not abandon them, but care for them. Inclusivity in their value for all of life. A second feature of how Christianity spread, they were exclusive as well. Most exclusive when it came to the body and to your sexual sexuality. The most exclusive Sexual ethics. Christians were strange and outstanding then and as they should be now for believing that all sexual activity 
is sacred and should be reserved only for a covenant that is monogamous between male and female. Inclusive value for all of life. Exclusive sexual ethics. Third last one, radical generosity. Radical generosity. When people thought of Christian people back in the day, they were astounded by how generous they were. One of the commentators said, these Christian people do not share their beds with all, but they share their tables with all. Countercultural. They do not share their beds. Oh, but their homes, their time, time, energy, talents, material goods, and any of the wealth and resources that they had been given, they radically shared. Inclusive value, exclusive sexual ethics, radical generosity. So how are we doing? How are you doing? How am I doing? How is CCSE doing? You may wonder, why are you jumping to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 today? We just got through chapter 1, 2, and 3. Well, to be honest, uh, it's because it was nonstop, heavy, intense sections on suffering and hardship. And I got to confess, I don't think we have the stomach for that. We will come back to chapter 4 soon. I don't know if we have the appetite or stomach for that. But let me also say this. The reason I'm jumping here is I know as one of your pastors that people right now are in a funk. A funk. I am too in some certain seasons and days of malaise and fatigue. I don't know if it's still post-COVID or not. Malaise and also just again sheer madness, which is busyness and exhaustion. One people said there's no math, no time left for people to even show up at church or to show up at small group. American suburb life has basically gotten rid of any math, any leftover time and energy. And so <clears throat> in this current moment, I do happen to think that we're starving for joy. Joy. I think we need to learn it. I think we need to recover it. It's ironic how joy will come about. And I think it's sooner, the better. I think the last time I spoke upon this topic that we're going to go into was actually pre-COVID back in 2019. I checked. Well, here in chapters 8 and 9, Apostle Paul is none other than fundraising. He is fundraising for the relief of the saints. There's been a famine, a severe famine. And he's fundraising for relief. Well, this Corinthian church had promised to give they had promised, they had pledged to give a certain amount, but for some reason they had not followed through. Paul here then in these two chapters is stirring the conscience, if you will, of a wealthy church in Corinth. He's uh, following up so that they would follow through, fulfill their pledges by highlighting the example of Christian believers in Macedonia. The Corinthian church had a lot to learn from the believers in Macedonia, and so do we. Here's some lessons. Look at verse 3 of chapter 8, some lessons. For they gave, the Macedonian believers, according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Beyond their means. The Macedonians, Paul knew, were 
poor. We read it in other words, actually extremely poor. But they still gave beyond their means. I don't know how to take that other than they gave more than they should have. They gave more than they could have. They gave until it hurt. The believers in Macedonia gave so much that they had to trust the Lord to provide for them the next day. That's lesson number one, beyond their means. Lesson number two, look at verse four. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. (laughs) The Macedonian believers begged to give. What are the things you beg for? What concert experience do you wait in line for? I hear ticket prices are going through the roof just because Taylor Swift showed up at a certain stadium. She is a rock star, true, sure, to be, to be sure. She's actually now swallowing up football dads. Even that demographic is getting on board the Taylor Swift train. What do you beg for? What do you most crave and desire? What do you look forward to? It might be that vacation coming up. It might be that maybe earlier retirement. Or it might be that date. Here's what the Macedonians begged for. Here's what they looked forward to. They begged Paul to give. You see, evidently, giving for the Macedonian believers gave them joy. The paradox of joy is not in how much you get, but how much you can give. The paradox of joy is that it comes by giving. And presumably, Apostle Paul, knowing their condition, tried to stop them. You know, you you should kind of take it easy. You know, just hold back here. Are you sure you want to do that? But they said, in effect, Paul, we wouldn't be as joyful. No, 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 Paul, we, we beg you. We have to give this because it's part of or it completes our joy. Wow, lesson number one, they gave beyond their means. Lesson number two, they begged to give because it was part of their joy. Lesson number three, look at verse five. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This was not mechanical. It was not robotic. It's not just checking off some lists. This is not an AI machine who gave. No, no, no. It was personal, not impersonal. It was genuine, not mechanical, at least in two ways. You see, the Macedonian believers had given themselves over just entirely. No strings attached, no conditions, no like out clauses. No, no, no. They first gave themselves to the Lord. And then second, I love this. Christian people are known to be a group of people where your life is my life. My life is your life. Your condition is my condition. Your burdens are my burdens. My joys are your joys. That's how the Macedonian believers conducted themselves. Secondly, they gave themselves over to the people of God. Their life 
was vitally connected to the life of other Christian people going through famine. Lesson number three. Here's lesson number four. Look at verses one and two. From the outset, here's how Apostle Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, describes the radical giving or generosity of the Macedonian believers. It's just right here in verse one. Pay attention. We want you to know. Now, if you gave a report, a fundraising report, or a missions report about so-and-so doing this for so-and-so, how would you describe it? Well, here's how Apostle Paul describes the Macedonian believers giving. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Fourth lesson, God's grace is shown. God's grace is known. God's grace is named. God's grace is felt. It's felt. We have small group signups. A lot of you will not feel the grace of God until you feel it from the people of God. More so, a lot of people will not feel the grace of God unless the people of God give generously. Apostle Paul says, this is how people know, see, and feel what? The grace of God. The grace of God. Through our material, time, and energetic, and hospitable generosity. God is shown to be so glorious. God is shown off to be, he's infinitely rich. He's more than sufficient. When his people give themselves away for ministry, mercy, and missions. Here's a concluding lesson by contrast. Paul is clearly contrasting, is he not? He's stirring the conscience of the Corinthian church by highlighting the Macedonian believers. But what's the concluding lesson? I'll put it this way. O Corinthian church, O CCSC, I want you to know about a very poor church over churches in Macedonia who gave beyond their means until it hurt so that this lesson would be known. The wealthier, the richer you get, does not mean that the more you will give. The concluding lesson by contrast is, in fact, the wealthier you become, it may become more difficult to give because your wants become needs. Certain lifestyles or certain standard of living becomes your life. Good things, very good things, yes, but they turn into God things. For most of you, if you grew up anywhere around an immigrant church, any immigrant church, oh, your parents, your ancestors, going through survival mode, they were just trying to get by. Can I ask you this question? Do you think that the giving of time and energy and even of their finances in the first-generation immigrant church was better or worse than second- and third-generations who are far wealthier? Do we need a scientific survey for that one? 
Do you actually think that first-generation immigrants who had far less gave more or less than second and third generations who attend a church? I think this is one of the concluding lessons by contrast. Lessons, lessons. Oh, but I'm one of your pastors. I want the word of God to move you. I want the Holy Spirit to move you. There's two movements toward generosity. Here's number one. It's not yours anyway. Stop acting like it. It's not yours anyway. What, what pastor, what do you mean what's not mine? Actually, everything. You woke up this morning. You can understand what I'm saying. That, that, do you, do you think you're in control of that? Your job or your job opportunities, you think you're really in control of that. It's not yours anyway. The Bible time and time again calls us owners. No, never. The Bible calls you the sole investors. No, never. The creators and the authors, never. Calls you stewards, calls you managers. It calls us people who are on loan. And we are to return back to the sole creator, author, mastermind, sole investor, founder. It's not mine. This church is not mine. Nothing is mine. My wife and my children, they're not really mine. Paul asks a brilliant question, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Go look it up. It's a riveting verse for me. Let me paraphrase the question Paul lodges. What do you have right now, today, that is not a gift? Hmm? If you've grown up anywhere near church, anywhere near a biblical worldview, any reality checks, what do you and I have that is not a gift? It's not yours. It's not mine. Oh, that's the first significant movement toward radical generosity. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Here's what it reads. Will man rob God? Okay, wow. We're going to start like that? Yet you are robbing me. If you want to know what God's voice sounds like, or you may wonder, what does he say to people like me? You don't have to guess. Here it is through the prophet Malachi. God says, you are robbing me. How? But you say, how? How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You, there's a missing a you, a why there. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test as the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. 
If this interests you at all, if this provokes you at all, Malachi says on behalf of God, you are robbing me. Where do we begin with the metric for that? How do you measure that? How do you specifically, visibly, financially judge whether or not you and I are robbing God? Well, it says, to begin with, tithing. Funny little word. Tithing is 10%. It's to automatically give 10%. It's to just completely no-brainer, just, it just, it doesn't even, I can't even touch that. It doesn't belong to me. It's just 10% of the household income. It just, it's marks that it doesn't belong to me. Every member who comes through, I hear there are nine now coming through. Thanks be to God. Every member is taught this. Rest assured, as one of your pastors, I do not follow up or see any of your giving. Please don't worry about that. But tithing here, here is clearly laid out in the Old Testament. And then some people come back. Well, you see, pastor, that's Old Testament stuff. I'm so glad, you know, Old Testament stuff. There's a lot of civil ceremonial laws there that do not apply today. But I'm sorry, on this one, it still applies. People might say, well, the Old Testament rule is you should give 10%. New Testament, we're all about freedom and grace. You have it backwards. Tithing was a principle in the Old Testament in view of the goodness and grace of God. Therefore, should tithing disappear or should it actually increase in the New Testament in view of the goodness and grace of God? In other words, has the goodness and grace of God increased or decreased? Has it gone up or down? What has been manifested? And so I would submit to you that 10% tithing has not at all disappeared, but it's like the visible, practical, financial bottom floor. It's like training wheels. You know, when little kids are starting to learn to ride a bike, there's just training wheels on both sides. It's a wonderful tool. And for some of us, we ought to learn, because it's not yours anyway, to tie 10% marks for you and for everybody else who it really belongs to. It's like training wheels to teach us and launch us into a mindset, habits, spending patterns, saving patterns, and a lifestyle of giving. Randy Alcorn, in one of his classic books, he says, there are many, many people come up to him and says, I can't afford to tithe. I cannot afford to tithe. Randy Alcorn comes back and asks, well, let me ask you a question. If I reduced your income by 10%, would you die? Would you die? And of course, inevitably, invariably, the person comes back and says, no, I would not die. Randy Alcorn comes back and says, well, then you've just admitted you can afford to tithe. You just don't want to. You just don't want to plan to. You don't just don't want to prioritize to. See, you don't want to actually make room for that, but it's actually the first room you should make. 10%. Tithing marks who it really belongs to. It's not yours anyway. It's not yours anyway. Here's a second movement, though, toward radical generosity. Give 
what you've been given. Give what I've been given. Look at verse 7 of chapter 8. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. Again, problem-filled church, problematic church. They got way too personal with Apostle Paul. But Paul had no trouble calling out, here's some of your strengths and gifts. You have faith, you have speech, you have knowledge, earnestness, and I know you want to be loving. But look at this last part. See that you excel in this act of grace also. What is he talking about in this act of grace? Remember verses 1 and 2? The grace of God is known to you now. The grace of God is shown to you. What is the grace of God? It was their radical generosity beyond their means. The joy that they got in begging to give it. Begging to give it. What's on your bucket list? Let's be honest. I don't know if you share this in small group. Maybe we should one day. Just list it out. Just be honest. What's your goals in life? Early retirement. That's good. Your kids to be well-adjusted, successful. Great. Your wife to like you again. <laughs> Wonderful. One of my prayer requests. Absolutely. <laughs> your church or your work and business to go well. Good. Paul says... How many of you have on your bucket list or your golden life? By the end of this year, I would like to give more. I would like to give away more. I would like to learn and discipline and grow in, and Paul uses this word, excel. Excel in what? In the act of grace, which is giving. If you get the grace of God, you are gracious like God. Plain and simple. If you really grasp the grace of God given to you, you give graciously like God. Giving above and beyond the 10%, the bottom floor training wheel principle is called generosity. Now that's called generosity. And that's what Paul is talking about in chapter 8 and 9. We're not talking about tithing or 10%. No, no, no. We're talking about way and above and beyond the 10%, which just marks it all belongs to God anyway. You know, in college at Cal... And having traveled a little bit and spoken and being exposed to and participated in many different churches and ministries. I do think that there's a standard effective way of how you should do church. And especially of how you should fundraise for a big project. It goes like this. Massively push and pressure. Make people feel, just get them on a guilt trip shame them and it's actually a very incredibly effective tool for leaders and communicators and yes cult leaders that the worse you can make people feel about themselves you can actually get them to do almost anything so that they can feel better about themselves 
So a lot of churches and fundraising is built on this. And there's just whole campaigns. And it actually, it does work. Oh, believe me, it works. Like if you're just after results or numbers or the bottom line or more people to come, you can do this. And it really, really works. Just push, pressure, coerce, make them feel horrible so that they can do something so that they wouldn't feel as horrible. Is this what Paul does? Is this how Apostle Paul fundraises? More importantly, is this how Apostle Paul does church? Is this how he does life? Far from it. Because, my friends, I have learned the hard way. Without the grace of God, you can give your money, but your heart won't change. Without the grace of God, you can give everything to a church, but you won't become a Christian. Without the grace of God, you can give up certain things in your life, but the entirety of your life, the fundamental drive of your lifestyle will not be touched by the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know this? Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9 of chapter 8. There's a much better way to go about church, to go about life, and to even fundraise. Here it is, the way of the gospel. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What does this tell us, my friends? What is this saying? What is the gospel implicating here? What does it mean with money? Here's what it means God doesn't need or want your money. Never. CCSE would never just come and sit here. You become a member. We just want your money. Please make sure you get more money. That's the bottom line. That's all that counts. Never. Do you know what God wants? God doesn't just want your money. He wants your mind. God doesn't just want your mind. He wants your heart. God doesn't just want your mind and heart. He wants the entirety of your soul. He doesn't just want your mind and your heart. He wants your mind and heart and soul. He wants all of your life. In other words... God doesn't just come to get what he wants. He wants you. He wants all of you. For God himself gave up all of himself. Did you read that back in verse 7? If there were anyone who could go around to any church and just say, I command it, I force it. It's our new protocol. Here's the new rule. Period. No questions asked. That's big boss, Paul. But when it came to fundraising, Apostle Paul says, although I could command it, I won't. And you know why he won't? Do you know why he'll never coerce it? Because he cares much more about God changing you by his grace. By his grace. I'll give chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. The following text. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. I mean, who talks like this? What? This is an apostle. He has all authority. He's commissioned by God. He's the, the man. He's the man. And he says, I want you to decide. <laughs> Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Wow. <laughs> wow. Hey, imagine with me, guys, 
church and doing life not coerced, not manipulated, not shamed, not abused, and not reluctant. This is how Paul did it. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all a grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What does God love? God loves it that you just give. God loves it that you just go through the motions, lifeless and dead. God loves it you just do your duties for your church. Just check in, check out. God loves it that you just showed up. Great. No. God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word for cheerful is hilarious. Hilarious. A hilarious. He loves comics. He loves people who have laughter. He loves people who don't just give their money, but they're joyful when they give it. God loves not just what he can get out of you, but how you give what God wants. A cheerful, hilarious, you know, you may say, God, God, how do you ask for so much? What is this, man? Today is another sermon. It's like, man, you're, this is another, this is an impossible bar now. So are you telling me, Pastor Hill, not only should I tithe 10%, now there should be generosity above and well beyond that tithe, and then I should have a smile on that face with it? Yeah. It's not what I'm saying. It's what the word of God is saying. And here's how you get it. Here's where the hilarity, the joy, and the cheer come from. It's when the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of you and moves you and fills you with the reality of what God did. Do you think Jesus Christ determined to come and give away his whole life reluctantly with misery as a duty do you think Jesus Christ your maker and your savior and redeemer came down because uh, he came up with the perfect business plan. I'll tell you right now, it was the worst business plan ever devised. It was doomed to fail. Do you think God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit went through like, what's the return on investment on something like this? Hmm. Let's calculate the return on investment if we go ahead with this. Do you think they were manipulated or coerced? No, 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 no. Who for the joy, Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him, despising the shame, endured the cross. What was his joy? What was the hilarity? What was the laughter about him? It was to give you life through his death. It was to have you and me and not to go through eternity without you and me. John 3.16. What does it say? For God so calculated. For God so devised. 
for God so set up an investment or business plan or projection? For God so thought about a fair market rate? For God so loved the world, loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world, friends. I've been there in that seat as Elder Eric has prayed. If you are calculating and thinking about what's the bare minimum bottom floor that I can contribute or offer and get away with, my friends, it's because you've fallen out of love. But when God so loved the world, when you are so in love with what you are giving to, you are never thinking about the bottom floor. You're thinking about the ceiling and maybe blowing it away. The maximum, all that you can give. Really, really good people, newer friends, or maybe reconnected friends of mine. And now we've got several here at this church. And it's wonderful of the grace of God shown through you, shown through you. Maybe one of the things you need to take away is just you've got to learn just the discipline, the training wheels of tithing, 10%. I mean, that just doesn't belong to you. It's, it belongs to God and his church, period. Just period. Like no-brainers, like just automatic from our household. We never touch that, right? But to go above and beyond that, people ask, well, you know, Pastor, I, you know, I want to give to people and organizations and churches and institutions who really deserve it. You know, I want to give people to uh, causes that prove themselves, have a great track record, and again, have a really great future potential. And that is really good. I, I would say I agree with that. Please don't hear me today as one of your pastors. By no means am I saying when you give generously to anything or any cause that you should invent the vision. You should invent the integrity of it. Is the money really going to where it's needed? You should invent its accountability structures and its reporting. But, but... If performance and provenness and fairness is all that ever motivates you, it's not grace, is it? If provenness and fairness and performance is all that ever motivates you, it's not grace. And Jesus would have never gone through what he did. Because fairness drives religious Pharisees Grace generates generous Christians. And there's a world of difference. Fairness creates religious leaders. The grace of God creates and drives radically generous Christians. Oh, let me just close with this. You know, you heard the phrase, a gift that keeps on giving? Well, here it is. Radical, genera radical generosity that keeps on giving. Radical generosity that keeps on Just two things real quick. It produces hilarity. It produces joy. It should bring about more levity. It should liberate you with contentment. 
If you grew up in a household or your household right now has very little levity or laughter or joy to it, very little relaxation, can I suggest to you, and it's not because I'm suggesting this to you, okay? It's Jesus, actually. <laughs> Jesus suggested it. He keeps bringing it up over and over and over. It's almost like bothersome. He just keeps bringing it up. Can I suggest it has to do with money? Maybe it has a lot to do with money. Much of it, of our lack of contentment and liberation and cheer has to do with our lack of radical generosity. Went on a recent um, dinner date with my wife, Sunny, I think two or three weeks ago. For some of you, if you know anything about my wife, she completely runs all of our household. Thanks be to God. She runs and manages all of our finances, all of our accounts. That is why we're able to save every single year. She gives me an allowance. That's the grace of God. She gives me an allowance each month. 21 years in, I've just passed the age of 50. I don't feel insulted by it. I feel grateful for it. And during the dinner date, 21 years in, truth be told, I was watching the Dodger game on my phone in the background there. Kind of need that going on, the background noise. She turns to me, Harold, now that our girls have gone to college, you know what we should do? We should save more aggressively. One time she could get me to stop my Dodger game, put the phone down. Now you have my full attention. And I said, Sonny, when have we not saved aggressively? 'Truth is somewhere in that middle, and I think it tilts more towards Sonny. Someone who saves for the sake of greater giving toward ministry, mercy, and missions. How I need that. How we all need that. A second gift that just keeps on giving. It directs and satisfies your heart. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21 is what Jesus taught. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, whether moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Can I just take that last verse and kind of translate it into my like media warped mind? You know, all those criminal investigative shows where you're trying to investigate where, what does this organization really do? They always say, follow the money. Just follow the money. Trace the money. Jesus said, in effect, follow the money. That's where your heart goes. Just follow the money. And that's where your heart always goes. But where can your heart go? Where can my heart go? Where this heart will be fully satisfied and overflowing with joy. My friends, this Jesus Christ of the Bible taught more about how you handle money and material goods and time and talents more than heaven and hell combined. Biblical scholars will tell you that. Did you know that? Jesus warned you and I against greed, greed, over lust, 
over wanting, always feeling like you're never getting. He warned against greed. Beware of that more than even sexual immorality. Because Jesus knew how you handle money shows who your true master is. Let me just close with this probing question. It's a question you must ask. It's a question you must answer. It's a question you must settle. How much is enough? How much is enough? When is enough enough? If you make 100,000, you have to make 500,000. If you make a million, it's got to be 10 million. Maybe you're close to 100 million. It's got to be a billion. It never stops. Do you know that? Do you know it never stops? Do you know it never stops until you and I wrestle and answer this question? How much is enough and when is enough enough? And where and when will be the joy by giving? The joy that is unleashed by radical generosity. I'm afraid to say one of the singular greatest threats to our church's spiritual vitality, your joy and my joy, and our Christ-likeness has got to be this. For Jesus warns us all, what good is it to gain the whole world if you're going to lose your soul? And some of you, I'm afraid to tell you, you are losing your soul. You are losing your soul. Because you are so preoccupied and busy and overly obsessed. And you are just all about it's not enough. But we come back to the way of the gospel. We come back to the one and only Christ Jesus himself in verse 9 once again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. If anyone today is poor in spirit, poor in life, poor materially, there is one who became bankrupt poor for you. And in him, you are eternally, infinitely rich beyond your wildest imagination. For in him, he gives of himself and is the entirety of his kingdom resources and he pours it upon you. For the rest of any of my friends who are listening to this, you say you believe and follow Jesus. We want CCSE to be an agent of changing lives, changing lives. Well, here it is. Here it is. Do you know how you experience maximum joy? Do you know how many more people will experience joy in life through the gospel? Do you know how Jesus Christ himself experienced and unleashed joy? 
he gave radically, irreversibly. And in him, we become rich. My friends, there's a far, far better way to do life. There's a far better better way to do relationships. There's a far better way to do church here at CCSE. It's the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel tells me when his way becomes your way, when his way becomes mine, there's joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Thank you for the power. And apart from the power and the work of your Holy Spirit, all of this is lifeless and will return dead. Oh, Lord, I pray that it would only bring about life. It would bring about liberation. And, Lord, we would taste and experience and share a joy this world can never produce. A joy in the gospel, in the one who was infinitely, perfectly rich, but chose to become poor. Oh, hear us, we pray. May you bring about much fruit from this as we respond now in prayer and worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.